Good evening. This is Cinema 60. I mean, if, if there's anything you need or that I can do, please tell me. Well, you could let me make love to you. Make love, did you say? Yes. What do you mean? You don't even know my psychocardiogram. This is what I mean. This. A bed. That? But nobody's done that for centuries. I mean, nobody except the very poor who can't afford the pills and the psychocardiogram readings. Why not? Because it was proved to be distracting and a danger to maximum efficiency. And, and because it was pointless to continue it when other substitutes for ego support and self-esteem were made available. So, you won't do it? Well, if you simply must insist, I guess so. Hello, and welcome to a special guest episode of Cinema 60. Jenna's here with us. Hi, Jenna. Love, Bart. <laughs> exactly. And our special guest is Ryan Moore of Lost in the Long Boxes. I've known Ryan for, I don't know, I've known him casually for probably 15 years or so. He used to come into my store. He'd share his music with me. We'd chat about stuff. You know, we kind of kind of lost touch with each other for a while. And uh, then serendipitously, uh, after <laughs> Jenna and I recorded uh, our Bond, our, our goofy, absurdist Bond episode and did, uh, did a couple of comic book-based movies, Ryan got in touch with me and, and uh, shared that he was doing a, his own podcast called Lost in the Long Boxes. It's, a, it's about comics. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but from what I've listened to, your co-hosts seem to be really into the superhero stuff, but you are more in just a general comics historian and you like you have a really broad range of interest when it comes to, to comics. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Lost in the Long Boxes? Uh, yeah, sure. And once again, thanks. Uh, you know, thank you both for uh, having me on the show and everything. And I, I would agree that uh, I think I think uh, Steve and Josh might be a bit more into the superhero stuff maybe josh to a slightly lesser actually you know it's not true it's just that i think um lately they've been trying to really gear things towards the marvel stuff because of all the mcu movies and things coming out so they're kind of trying to cash in on all that but uh ultimately when i started the show we're on our second year now um the first year and a half was just me uh, I, I just set out really to, uh, you know, dig into the guts of, of comic books and how they, uh, you know, how they relate to the era that they came out and what they say about society and things like, hey, my, I'm a huge Grant Morrison fan and Alan Moore, the whole 80s British invasion and all that, you know. Mm -hmm. It's perfect for somebody like me who used to love comics as a kid, Marvel in particular, uh, sort of got out of the habit of reading comics but still have a strong strong feelings of nostalgia about them and have more recently read some independent stuff the superhero comics kind of bore me these days but i i still love it as an art form and i was excited to hear your take on a lot of this stuff because it's not just fanboy like oh who what's happening with uh i don't know whatever you know batman now what what's ha what's batman doing in his 16 different comics he's in right now yeah is he wearing briefs or is he not wearing yeah. briefs? He has to have a different costume. <laughs> and I really love the uh, the historical perspective you have on that stuff. So I thought it would be great to have you come on and talk with us about Barbarella. Oh, yeah. Barbarella. 
up high. Teach me to fly. Electrify. A, uh, an iconic 60s film. Everybody knows Barbarella. It's, it's visually stunning sci-fi film, and it, it you know really represents something about the sexually liberated late 60s. We wanted to talk about it on our 1968 sci-fi episode, but th- I guess we said no. Barbarella is just too special. We need to we need to have an episode just about Barbarella because it's it's that important, and uh, it's it's based on a French comic book from the early 60s. Do you have some uh, some background on the comic book itself, Ryan? I do. Actually, I uh, you know I, I I dug into it over the past over the past week and stuff and tried to get as many little tidbits as I could. So if you'll bear with me, I might I might kind of deviate a bit because it's kind of like branches off in a few different directions, but I'll, I'll try to keep myself in check. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, John Claude Forrest originally wrote it and uh, wrote and illustrated it in 1962. And it was kind of released in, in various sorts of different French publications before it was finally collected in 1964 by Eric Losfeld. And Eric Losfeld is famous for publishing... Uh, a collection of various comic book stories and stuff like that called and I'm going to butcher this because I can't I can't pronounce anything I can't I can't even pronounce English words let alone French words but uh Edition Le Terrain Vague I think is what... <laughs> I, I, I think that was pretty good is that pretty close okay Terrain Vague maybe Vague okay mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this publication was notorious, was notorious and notorious mm-hmm. for publishing, uh, you know, questionable material, e- even by 60s uh, French standards and everything. And interestingly enough, on his grave, and this is where I'm really going to drop the ball, uh, this is inscribed on his grave, Tout si cuil editant avait le souffle de la liberté. And I guess I guess that translates into everything. Everything he edited had the breath of freedom. <laughs> I got that last part. Your pronunciation was good enough for me to to, to understand some of that. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least you understood what I was saying. <laughs> and you know, it's it's no surprise then that the uh, the book would come to be known as you know, Barbarella would come to be known as the first pornographic quote unquote comic book, though it, it actually was predated. Uh, by the Tijuana Bibles and stuff, which of course were little uh, eight-page kind of provocative mini comics that were that were coveted for their sort of raunchy and and pornographic imagery, you know, in the uh, in the nineteen uh, twenties and everything through through nineteen forties, as I understand. I think they kind of went out of vogue around like nineteen fifty, but but those were really uh, underground, right? I mean, they weren't published by a semi-reputable publisher, right? They were just sort of distributed under the counter and and that sort of thing right yeah whereas barbarella is actually was marketed in fairly mainstream places i think Uh, by all means yeah the tijuana bibles were more like uh your like punk rock zines or whatever you know and actually i think it's probably i think it was probably easier to get a hold of a zine than it would be a tijuana bible actually so Mm -hmm. But but yeah, it was definitely the first like widely available published uh, you know comic book with pornographic content, and uh, you know it was it was actually it wasn't it wasn't released in the United States. It wasn't it wasn't released and translated into English until it was uh, until it was published in Heavy Metal, uh, which Heavy Metal, ironically enough, is actually an uh, an American translation of a French comic book uh, collection called Metal Hurlant. Hmm. So. <laughs> kind of like went full circle there and everything. And, and uh, 
that's really all I have to say about the uh, the comic history of, uh, of Barbarella. <laughs> that's interesting because I I had an idea that uh, Americans were aware, you know, maybe hadn't read the Barbarella comic book, were aware of it as a comic book before the movie came out, but maybe sounds like the movie was uh, was the introduction to this character for uh, for most English speakers. I would say so. I would say so. Yeah, unless you maybe had unless you were maybe into like the Valerian stuff or, or anything or like Blueberry or anything that Mobius was doing, you know, uh, you probably would not have known about Barbarella if you lived in the United States until the movie. Right. You know, Americans are way we're way too conservative to have gone for that. I mean, even Jane Fonda in general being in all these French films was enough of a scandal within the U.S. I, I, I does not surprise me that we kept Barbarella overseas and did not import it. Oh, for sure. And also like the Comic Code Authority, you know, was just so relentless. I mean, you couldn't even uh, you couldn't even show a character uh, in a comic book at that time that was a criminal who had any redeeming qualities whatsoever. Like that was a huge no-no. You, your entire publishing house could be shut down for this for the, for that sort of thing. <laughs> Though yeah. I did, I did find it kind of funny how how this comic is considering you know how scandalous it was. It it is very tame. <laughs> yeah, it really is pretty tame. Yeah, <laughs> I was expecting much more sex. I was expecting much more nudity. Even I guess there is like a degree of whenever she gets a chance she is removing her clothing in a very sort of playboy-esque way. It's it's sort of right. like, you know, it's there strictly because there is somebody reading a comic and that's why she's doing it. Even though the character herself does seem to at least want it constantly and she's very disappointed when she doesn't get it. So, you know, it's right. it's fine, but it's, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't do much for me particularly. <laughs> <laughs> I was amazed at how much it, it, the, the movie does actually really parallel the comic though yeah it, it does surprisingly yeah <laughs> which doesn't say that much for the movie or for the comic <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what i really liked about the comic was uh was just the whole the dream logic of it like she just gets out of one scrape and falls into another and nothing really makes a whole lot of sense it's just a whole lot of kind of crazy sci-fi ideas jammed together and uh you know a lot of well-drawn like beautifully drawn alien landscapes and uh, barbarella just uh going through a thorny rosebush and having her clothes ripped off or uh trying to get past a guard and uh, you know removing her clothes and, and seducing him and you know that sort of thing any excuse to get laid or or take her clothes off but right. um yeah beyond that it's just really a kind of a trippy sci-fi it's like a chandler novel crossed with a bad acid trip you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> Like, it's hard enough to summarize the plot of the movie, but to try and summarize what's happening in the comic book is nearly impossible. I, from what I can tell, this was written in eight-page chunks. Right. The, those eight pages will tell some kind of crazy little sci-fi story. The next eight pages will just jump to something like only barely connected to what happened in the last eight pages. And uh, like I said, it doesn't make much sense at all, but it's kind of an enjoyable read just to like watch where this is going to go next. Yeah, I feel like I feel like it's basically just, you know, John Claude Forrest being like, what bizarre background imagery can I can I throw in here to right. accent and accentuate her physicality, you know, Barbarella's physicality. I mean, to me, it seems like it's basically just a backdrop for her, like expressing her 
you know, if that makes any sense. <laughs> it felt very playboy to me. Like you're, you're, we all know we're here for the naked girl, but yeah, you, you got to yeah. wait through the plot every couple pages. Right. <laughs> it also does that thing that kind of drives me crazy in old Stan Lee written Marvel comics from the sixties, where you've got these beautiful drawings and it's not necessarily clear what's happening in them. Right. So he put yeah. dialogue in the mouth of the character that just explains all the things that have happened happened to get to this particular frame and it's it's very wordy and yeah position yeah. heavy but it's it's definitely a style it feels so 60s it's definitely my least favorite part of that era of comic books like i mean i don't normally i don't need the characters narrating every single second of the story for me you know? right. right in their mind like monologuing in their minds as like somebody they just notice somebody's drinking a soda or something, you know? <laughs> like, Especially when these plots end up boiling down to like not much at all. Right. <laughs> it ends up, I mean, half the time they're setting up this big crazy world where, you know, a certain wind will come from the West and it will cause everyone to freeze. But like at the end of the day, all it is is just like, there's a guy in a tribe and, uh, you know, he's mean and we don't like him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it, you know, like Barbarella, go seduce him, you know? Okay. Right. <laughs> But you do have to give it to Barbarella. She, you know, besides having sex as much as possible, she does seem to be really interested in, in freeing oppressed people whenever she. Oh can. yeah, for sure. <laughs> With sex. With sex. With sex yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a time capsule, and uh, it's it's fun to see how something like this could could have been shocking at the time. I, I think it really is fun to read this comic and then go look at the movie and see how much more coherent the film is. For sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Which absolutely. is not something I ever would have thought I'd say, but in a weird way, considering this script was like written by several hundred people, it actually does strangely come together. And... There's only like one detail from the comic I kind of wish that they had kept in the movie, but I understand why they couldn't, which was the flying shark situation, but oh yeah, well, sacrifices had to be made, you know. It was it was that or Pygar, <laughs> it was that or Pygar's, you know, uh, gazetteer flyby as he carried a Barbarella scene there. So <laughs> yeah, at least they got that in. <laughs> Surprisingly, they do get lots of bits from various stories in the comic into the movie and, and manage to work them together pretty well. I mean, it's sort of storyline wise, it's focused on the last story in the in the original Barbarella book. Jenna, do you want to, are, are you interested in trying to, to give us a, a plot synopsis of, uh, of Barbarella, the movie? Uh, come on, Jenna. <laughs> Barbarella is, uh, well, well, all right, let's, let's, let's get right into it. Barbarella, 1968. This is directed by Roger Vadim. And starring a bunch of people that it was it was way more fun rewatching this now that I recognize uh, a lot of these actors in part because of Cinema 60. But uh, besides Jane Fonda as the titular, we have uh, John Philip Law, who we've recently covered in Danger Diabolique, which was another which was being shot basically at the same time as this movie was, which is uh, a Dino De Laurentiis 
produced right. <laughs> high quality. Um, you have Anita Pallenberg, who is absolutely wonderful in this. Uh, Marcel Marceau is in this, the mime, who was very, very popular during the time. Marcel Marceau speaks in this film. I'm, right. I'm, this was his <laughs> his first speaking role, I think. Something oh, oh like wow. That. Wow. <laughs> It's like a who's who, yeah. uh, you have Ugo Tognazzi, who um, looks rather dashing in this. I don't think yeah. I've ever thought I would say that about him, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, he's pretty sexy in, in, in this and no other movie that I can right. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I don't know the plot. Uh, Barbarella is a um, space adventurer and she uh, arrives. In- I believe the word is vixen. Oh, exactly. Right. <laughs> the official word, a, a, a space vixen uh, pilot. And she uh, ex- lives in a shag carpet furnished <laughs> spaceship that kind of looks like it has three boobs <laughs> attached to it, mm-hmm. which is maybe one of the first times we have a non-phallic ship. Now that I, I would say so. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but right. The plot. Uh, let's see. The president of Earth calls her up. Uh, while naked and says no this is very serious don't, no time to get dressed don't trouble yourself it's a matter of state <laughs> and says that there is a missing scientist this dr duran durand <laughs> who uh invented a, a very high-powered laser called the positronic ray and they're afraid because he's gone missing they they want to make sure that this ray doesn't get into the wrong hands and so barbarella you are the intrepid naked lady that can solve this problem for us <laughs> and she says absolutely sir i love my country god bless and my planet he's the president of earth oh you're right the country of the planet <laughs> the of country earth. of the and... planet <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know. And then she goes to a planet and she gets through a bunch of space mischief. I, it's just so convoluted. I, I feel like we should just talk through this this movie. I mean... Yeah, that's a setup. Because <laughs> we'll get through it. We'll get through it all. But uh, I, I'm very... What do you guys think about this movie? The first time that I saw this movie, I was very disappointed because I wanted something that was like campy and fun. And it is, but I also... It, like the sheer amount of sexism just kind of ruined it for me at the time rewatching it several years later in a weird way. And maybe in part because of having seen more films and because of knowing a bit more about Jane Fonda and knowing a bit more about the film and and the sixties and the time, I actually sort of like this a lot more (laughs) (laughs) because it wasn't everything that, that Roger Vadim sets out to do Jane Fonda undermines in the best possible way. And instead it just came across as like basically the fun movie that I really wanted it to be the first time around. Yeah. She's not the bubble headed, uh, you know, space nymphette that, that the comics portrayed. Most people who saw this movie at the time, thinking back on it, it, you know, they think of Jane Fonda as just being, you know, an an airhead, but she, she definitely does undermine that. And she has almost to a degree where she's not that convincing in the role because clearly she's, she's got other priorities. You know, I want her to be enjoying the sex more than she seems to in this movie. And I want her to use her brains a little more because (laughs) she sort of gives evidence that she has some brains. But yeah, I mean, she looks the part completely. She does. 
She looks yeah, just like the eerie. comic book, actually. It's actually yeah. great <laughs> casting. She wasn't original. Uh, they, they wanted to get a bunch of other sexy ladies, and then they sort of fell back on Jane Fonda because everyone else said no, including Bridget Bardot said absolutely not. Yeah, I don't know. This movie, considering it opens with a, a rather ridiculous striptease in which Jane Fonda gets flat out naked and, and you see boobs and all of that, it is a very unsexy film. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's true for Vadim in general. Like, his movies the the subject is always sex nothing but sex but they're not ever very sexy at all i feel like that's <laughs> only because vadim is just such a crappy director because <laughs> <laughs> i think he sets out with this film he really wanted again to, to of course his own same old thing to play up the sex and to really portray it as honest and gritty and get in there and let's just shoot this like a documentary like he wanted to shoot porn basically and then of course the people that he casts especially i think the women end up having too much of a gosh darn like brain (laughs) (laughs) like oh damn i forgot about the fact that they're more than just sex objects shit you know it's not the movie i wanted anymore but because Fonda, apparently she decided to to play this up and, and you watch it and it's very campy. It's a lot of her being very like, oh my, you know, with these like ridiculous outfits and these crazy voices and characters. And there's really, the, the sex is played off in a way where she was sort of thinking, well, if this is a character who is born free and unashamed, she wouldn't be a prude and she wouldn't be your rebellious feminist because that would mean that she'd have something to rebel against you know to to be the the sexy vixen that everyone wants her to be so she went for this weirdly like childlike approach and it totally undercuts all of the erotic documentary efforts that <laughs> Vadim was making, which isn't to say she doesn't look freaking beautiful and I still want to steal her face and wear it, but. Yeah. I mean, you'd expect with uh, Terry Southern was actually the first guy to get his hands on the property to write the screenplay. And uh, it definitely has a lot of Terry Southern touches and like he's a, as obsessed with sex as Vadim is. Right. So you'd think they'd be a perfect match, but the problem is the movie just isn't that funny. Like it's it's fun to watch just her her adventures and I mean obviously the the set design is is incredible and it's just fun to watch for that reason you know looking at everybody's outfits but it's not the the hilarious satire that you would hope for from the guy who wrote Doctor Strangelove. It's campy but not funny campy in the way that say Modesty Blaze is. It it feels a lot more like uh, Danger Diabolique, um, you know, s- starring Pygar, John Philip Law, you know, same producer, also two of the same screenwriters, Brian Degas and Tudor Gates. They were two of the eight screenwriters on Barbarella and they wrote Danger Diabolique and I feel like there are a lot of similarities between just the feel of this movie and Yeah. And, and that other movie. Also based on a comic. Right, oh. yeah. The da- Danger Diabolique, you said? Yeah, it's it's great. You have to watch it if you have I'll it. I'll have to watch it and read it, yeah. We didn't read the comic, but the, the movie is a whole lot of fun. Nice. But you want another another movie where it's it's campy, but you, it's not very funny. Right. But I don't think it was really meant to be funny as much as it was just meant to be like, again, it's like, in, in God bless her for it, I think Jane Fonda ruined it in the best possible way because she did a great job at, at really visualizing who Barbarella would be as a real person. Whereas all of these other guys were just setting up cheeky little one-off crappy jokes so that they could get her naked. And which is more like the comic, you know, again, it was like, you sort of, 
have this this character comic barbarella is just there for the sex you know like she's like forcing people to have sex like there's a part where she in the comic where she gets upset because no one wants to have sex with yeah, her. yeah multiple parts in the comic. <laughs> right you know she's disappointed that's all she wants whereas jane fonda she like she plays this more like she she's ordering a large ice cream cone when she should be on a diet you know right. like she's She's cute and she's innocent about it. And that, that first, so the, the first part of the, the film, she sort of lands on this ice planet. She gets kidnapped by two vicious little children who tie her up and set, stick their toys on her. It turns out it's the whole camp of vicious little children. And she gets rescued by uh, Ugo Tognazzi, who is this sort of caveman looking guy that says, she's like, oh, I don't know how to thank you. You know, typical <laughs> uh, setup. And he's like, well, let's, let's, uh, Let's go for it, baby. It becomes clear that sex for her is this sort of bizarre Vulcan mind meld. It's it's not a uh, a physical act. You know, she talks about what is it? Her, her psychocardiogram has to be in perfect confluence. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, it it won't be any good. You know, do you have the pills? And and there's sort of this, the transference of exaltation or something. And and so, yeah, it's this totally like nutty thing. And he's like, oh, no, 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 little lady, let me show you. And removes his, you know, big fur overcoat to reveal an even furrier oh, <laughs> undercoat on his chest. That's right, and... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and she's like totally lit up. Oh, my God, this was amazing. No one's done, none had done it for centuries because it was meant to be a distraction. But you've opened my mind. This, I love it. And it's this really, it's it's genuinely like a fun way to introduce the the topic of sex, I guess, you know, but it isn't very sexy. You don't really get to see much. You know, you see her after the fact. You see this very silly sort of the ship that they're in kind of running around in circles on the ice because they're so busy boning. Right. <laughs> he offers her his furs. Yeah, you get a lot of post-coital Jane Fonda where she's been sprayed down to look like she's uh, covered in sweat. Like that's that's right. what the sex is in this movie. You get you get afterwards, and and she's just soaked. Implied sex, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because I it's sort of watching it now. I feel like the movie was it's like afraid of making her too slutty in a way. But I realize that that's actually that was Jane Fonda probably. I would say so. Yeah. There was only so much they could really show, and I think that Jane Fonda just didn't want. She didn't want to be, despite the fact that she took this role and she became known for taking sort of scandalous roles at the time uh, and being a sex symbol by now, like, I think she just, you know, I think she played it in this weird way that just totally undercut everything and it's sort of glorious for it. Well, you can see she's really like struggling to play up the, uh, and, and, you know, this is probably the worst word I could use for it, but, but the whole like bimbo factor seems so forced you, you can tell it's really not like, obviously that's the, that's the Barbarella characterization is she's a naked bimbo in space, but you can see like you, like you were saying before that Jane Fonda really like is slipping that in to capture the character, but it, it does, it did to me feel kind of awkward, like not like it was very unnatural for her, you know? <laughs> Right. How, how did you feel about this movie, Ryan? I feel like I didn't, I cut you off when I asked you and then I didn't let you talk. Oh, you know, that's, that's okay. It's okay. I, I'm, I have a podcast with two other co-hosts, so I'm used to <laughs> we're cutting each other off all the time. Um, I, I really have this, the same takeaway. I mean, you know, right out, right out the gate, I love that, you know, Bob Crew and the Glitter House is serenading us as we see this like bizarre 
acid trip or whatever once again <laughs> as she's floating nakedly and everything and then from there it just yeah you know it really it really does do a great job to channel the comic book but like you said unlike in the comic where Barbarella is is basically just a naked woman to look at with cool space scenes in the in the background you know Jane Fonda lends some more uh kind of like legitimizes the character I guess like Sure, she still has the dim-witted, once again, bimbo factor or whatever, but she also she also tries to like inject some actual character into this woman who is supposedly like the uh, the country of Earth special forces person or whatever. Like she's the one they go to whenever uh, the Earth is like being threatened by aliens and stuff like that. So yeah. you, you can't really, it's kind of hard to believe that she would just be this complete bimbo that just floats around naked in space all day. So, you know, thank God Jane Fonda had the wherewithal to kind of communicate that in a more realistic way. <laughs> it's funny, even her, even her like sort of dimwittedness about things and our naivety, it sort of reminded me a bit of like, star trek yeah <laughs> in in uh voyage home where uh scotty picks up a, a computer mouse and tries to talk into it and be like a computer you know and everyone looks at him like he's a freaking idiot yeah. and it makes you realize like in the future we're all gonna be dumb as hell because everything will be automated right you know like it does sort of make sense like you don't have to have like the best and brightest out there <laughs> oh we're, we're already getting there you know i remember uh like two years ago i was at the wild oats bakery in uh in brunswick man and there was a baby and their mother had passed them a, a, a magazine and the baby was trying to like swipe it like a tablet <laughs> <laughs> that always terrifies me if i see that yeah. it terrifies me wow. well how did you feel ryan about this movie as as a comic book movie i thought it was pretty cool how they really do play up the comic book factor i mean the way that her outfits change whenever she she like leaves the, the screen for five seconds and comes back and the way that these really bizarre worlds where i don't know there's like a like a guy floating in a bong who's being smoked for his like essence of man and oh yeah no i thought they i thought it was great i thought as a comic book movie it was it was amazing i mean once again they they channeled the aesthetic of the weird and wild world of, of barbarella perfectly you know, I, I love the uh, the the moth squid things with like eight heads that chase her and Pygar around towards the end of the movie. That's a, that's a great scene, you know. <laughs> right. I was impressed with how much comic book imagery they were able to get into in this movie because it is it does feel cheaply made. I mean, it's clear that it's set on a soundstage. You never forget. You never think you're actually on an alien planet. Right. Like it's. But despite how cheap this movie looks in a lot of ways it really like does an amazing job with the effects and the and the, and the creature designs and and all of that stuff you know it's it's sort of fitting with a lot of the the sort of camp culture this, this sort of pop art you know roy lichtenstein andy warhol sort of interest in lowbrow highbrow like like the batman TV I was show, just going like to say, the, like the Batman TV yeah. show, yeah, or the original Star Trek series, even. Yeah, people just uh, at this time really seem to love this this sort of cheap looking fantasy that is clearly like you're not supposed to get sucked in to this world and believe that it actually exists, but you're supposed to sort of see the the wobbling sets a bit and see the you know the zippers on the backs of, of the outfits uh, and and that sort of thing, and that's part of the the fun. Is just seeing the the, the seams, looking the you know, the whole campiness of it, is uh, you know part of the part of what makes it so 
pleasurable. I mean, nowadays you don't get enough of that. Everything, you know, all, all these superhero movies have to look real. Like you have to be totally sucked into these worlds. You know, they pump millions and millions of dollars into these things so that it looks, you know, that you believe the fantasy. And I right. love these late 60s. They, they spend so much time and energy working working on on bringing us into this into this comic book world that they, they oftentimes just like lose all the nuance and importance of like the source material. And I think we see that more and more with, uh, you know, Marvel or Disney or whatever, like cranking out all these movies and Warner Brothers DCs doing the same. And I feel like just with every one of them, I just feel less and less like I'm actually watching a superhero, a comic book movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the intention. Yeah. In the, in the late sixties, they wanted you to know that this is, this is comic book camp, and now they want you to forget that that comic books are even the source for this, for sure. this material. For sure, yeah. that's what kills me about all these Marvel movies. I don't want realism. I wouldn't read a comic book if I wanted realism. Yeah. <laughs> right? You want realism of heart. You want realism of you know something that that you can sort of grip grip onto emotionally. But I, when I'm reading like my favorite comic books, my favorite artists, everything is always the stuff that is making something new. I don't, you know, I can take a freaking photo if I want. <laughs> oh, for sure. Like yeah. I want to see something unique. I want to see something that doesn't exist, something fantastical. And I definitely, I mean, I love that about Barbarella. It looks like you're watching a, a dream. It really, and that it doesn't look real is, is the point, you know, for sure. I also love the, uh, you know, and and the old Batman TV show had this too, is the over-the-top acting. Like, everything has to be... And we were talking about this too for a minute, you know, with like, with in comic books where they're like monologuing and narrating literally every step of the story. But in Barbarella, I feel like, you know, even there too, like all the characters channel that just like over-the-top acting and just making everything, everything they say and everything that's going on, whether it's just somebody like eating an ice cream cone or something, it's very important. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's so much time spent on exposition and explaining what this thing is or why this is important important and none of it matters but it is it just sort of adds to the co comic book atmosphere just to have all the characters over explaining these unimportant things yeah honestly they can't all be wearing the outfits that they're wearing and not be over the top <laughs> oh, for I sure mean... look at pygar yeah <laughs> right and and pygar i feel like we didn't really introduce old pygar but he is a blind angel that barbarella runs into in a labyrinth on a planet that is being run by a queen of evil who is Anita Pallenberg who <laughs> wears this amazing outfit with like one giant horn and sequins and mesh and fur everywhere and uh it's it's wonderful it's the best <laughs> Anita Pallenberg um for those who aren't familiar with her um basically was married to every Rolling Stone at, at some point <laughs> or at least had an affair with them she was definitely married to Keith Richard for a while and and brian jones and she you know she's naked with mick jagger in uh performance, performance pretty much for, for the whole film yeah she was uh more than anything known as a muse for the uh the rolling stones Amuse, i yeah. think <laughs> but uh yeah she's great uh her her voice is very clearly dubbed by somebody else in this movie unfortunately although i think her euro trash accent would have really added something to oh that i think so character. I, I, I would have preferred that <laughs> i also really like david hemmings in this he was the only one that kind of made me smirk yeah <laughs> which is he plays this sort of bizarre revolutionary who's trying to overthrow the government of of evil ladies 
And what's oh right the the queen, which is uh, Anita Pallenberg. She this whole planet's built on Masmos, which is basically pure liquid evil. <laughs> Masmos. So uh, you know they're all trying to to deal with the fact that they're all being held captive by her in a way because she has the the key to the Masmos. And so David Hemmings plays this bizarre revolutionary who kind of lives in the sewers of this crazy city, and he wears leather underwear as you do when you're a bizarre vigilante or revolutionary (laughs) (laughs) one would hope and he is uh having he met this duran duran guy and and got one of those sex pills and you know jane fonda at this point she says oh you saved me like let starts undressing let's get let's get to it (laughs) well here we go he's like no 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 like please and and they have this sort of silly you know again it really is just vulcan mind melding like they put their hands together and uh both of their hair curls up uh, because he says it's been five years since he's, you know, made love. So <laughs> it's kind of no a woman's touch. Yeah. Yeah. They start to, <laughs> they start to smoke. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine if at any time anyone helped you or did you any favors, your immediate reaction was to disrobe and expect sex to ensue. Can you imagine? More? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the, that's like the only part of this that feels very much I guess male driven in a way right. it's like that's sort of like this is this is what they all wanted the movie to be like and it just keeps getting yeah. <laughs> well she's a, she's able to give an angel back his wings thanks to sex she, <laughs> right. uh, Hygar is a blind angel who refuses to fly but uh, but she you know they do it and all of a sudden he uh, he has the will to to uh, to soar through the skies again that's right it happens yeah. <laughs> I also I have to give a shout out, of course, to the uh, Orgasmatron in this movie, which is probably the best part of it. Oh, yeah. I thought the comic would have made a bit more of that. And I and that that Orgasmatron looked very phallic. But this one looks more like a like a piano from the movie Tommy <laughs> <laughs> any, or any Ken Russell movie with a piano has escaped and and uh, chomped down on Jane Fonda. And apparently when the whole machine blows up, uh, Vadim didn't tell anyone that's what was going to happen. So all of their screaming was that they thought they were all going to die. Oh my God, like, oh God yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, that was that was one hell of a scene. I, I, who did you say that the name of the actor was? The fellow there that was you know playing the, the piano while she was being... Oh, Milo O'Shea. Milo he's O'Shea. A, oh, okay. just an Irish irish character actor he's in he's in everything he's in so many 60s movies but i know him best as as, uh, as duran duran okay yeah just uh just the most bizarre scene there is he's like gleefully hammering away on the keys as she's just you know gyrating and stuff inside this grand <laughs> piano or whatever the hell is supposed to be <laughs> And sweating every time the camera cuts away, somebody has sprayed her down yeah, with, a, yeah. with a mister, and she's a, she's a little more wet. Yeah, it's, it's great. great. It's great. Again, I just I love how these these movies like play up the unrealisticness of all of it, and 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 reflecting that in the in the costuming, and reflecting that in the set, reflecting in the acting. It really is like a one hundred and one how to make a camp film for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Which I feel like was that weird question a couple of years ago when uh, the the Met Gala did camp as a theme and everyone failed hardcore, <laughs> if you guys follow that stuff. But it is like, you know, to, to be camp, I mean, it's, it's a lifestyle, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I mean, a good point of comparison is the recent adaptation of a uh, French sci-fi comic, Valerian and yeah. the City of a Thousand Worlds, yeah. Yeah, that's um, which was terrible, but it, it was going for this camp thing but it also was you know had this 
this huge budget. So the sets were incredible, but a little too like unnecessarily realistic. They, like, um, they tried to put like what, 45 years of comics into one movie. I mean, it was kind of like doomed from the beginning. Valerian's a huge, expansive <laughs> world. The comic's been going since the 19 late 60s, early 70s, I forget. And it's, it's still going now, I'm pretty sure, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was a contemporary with with the Barbarella comic, I guess. Which yeah. which came first? Barbarella, Barbarella came first, first, yeah, and then Valerian. But and you've read the comic? Do you know? I have, I have read Valerian, yeah, and I mean, to be honest with you, the at least the early stuff that I've read of Valerian is, it's, I mean, it does have kind of a slight camp factor, but it it also, I mean, don't forget that Valerian was like the biggest inspiration for the star wars movies according to george lucas so of course right out the gate it has this huge expansive universe like you're constantly having to digest all these different species and all this different technology and weirdness and, and once again it's all through the lens of camp but it is still i don't really know how to describe it it's like where camp and like super hyper hard science fiction nerd meets you know, that weird coffee shop that they go to on the same night of the week or whatever. <laughs> yeah. If that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess Star Wars too has a, has a real camp factor to it. So oh, it sure, kind of, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that's probably a more, more valid adaptation of, uh, of the comic, at least the sixties version of it than the, than the 2017 movie was. There is like a sincerity in in a lot of this camp stuff that I think is a little bit what's missing from newer comic book adaptations beyond the fact that they're trying too hard to be realistic is they are too self-aware. Yeah. They're too like worried. Like they are, they're so worried about posturing as like the super cool guy. They lose what you really care about, which is that you do get invested in these crazy worlds and well, I would say that Barbarella is not the greatest example of something like this because, again, the plot definitely doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> it does at least drive you into these various different scenarios that are a lot of fun to watch. You know, there's one scene where the queen is in her, um, you know, chamber of dreams, which has a, an invisible barrier and an invisible key. At this point, you know, if you really stop and think about it, we're just watching a bunch of grown adults and you know, leather bikinis, uh, pretend to hold a key and, and put it in their, uh, shirt. And in a sort of really nutty, uh, you know, improv, like almost like student play (laughs) (laughs) kind of stuff, you know, like this, it's really silly, but the fact that they play it with sincerity. And then when we get to the, this queen's chamber and Jane Fonda is being chased by Duran Duran and, you know, he's uh, bullying her and then she remembers she has the key and it falls and you can't see any of this happening. But like at this point, you're totally invested. You're like, oh, hell yeah, this is cool. (laughs) Where's that key? Yeah, where's the key at, you know? And (laughs) then then she gets trapped in what essentially is just a liquid light show. It's (laughs) (laughs) there is not even even the comic did a a bit more of an interesting situation with the dream room where it felt like, you know, everyone thought they were on a raft or the, the, the sort of place keeps changing and they keep having to deal with the terrain uh, changing under their feet. Whereas in the movie, it's just, it's just a liquid light show, (laughs) (laughs) but you love it. I'm totally into it. I'm like, yeah, that's what dreams look like. We've, we've seen enough sixties movies. We know that's what dreams look like. So yeah, I think they definitely, they definitely did a good job through the the lens of camp to, uh, you know, create, create some pretty interesting uh, locales and interesting, uh, you know, groups of people and, I, I guess societies might be a stretch, but, but, but yeah, I think the Barbarella movie, def, like 
it, it definitely does create some weird worlds for sure. Maybe not like to the to the expansive extent that like Star Wars does or whatever, but but, but also like Barbarella doesn't need that, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, because it's it's supposed to be like a weird '60s psychedelic sci-fi adventure you don't need like a highly regimented nazi like empire for her to fight you, you want weird uh the weirder the better you know yeah you don't feel like they're making a movie for the ages here it's and that's what why it's such a great time capsule like star wars you can you know enjoy anytime any decade because it was sort of meant to be you know this mythic story that uh, speaks to everybody Barbarella has no illusions of, of doing that. I mean, the the heroism is is kind of an afterthought, right. and there's just sort of this this time capsule of what here's here's what's happening in 1968. Here's uh you know here, here's a little glimpse of the uh, of the underground, what the what the kids are into, and uh, it's it's great for that reason. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I was uh, yesterday I was reading some of my 80s Grant Morrison stuff, uh, and Animal Man. Bart, you and I had talked about Grant Morrison's Animal Man, and and you know mm-hmm. I can definitely see where, especially when when Animal Man goes to like the the weird sort of purgatory place or whatever, and that he's seeing all these like random old nineteen forties forgotten characters, and the the scenery and the imagery is constantly changing, much like the Dream World we're just talking about. I could totally see where Grant Morrison uh, was obviously heavily, heavily inspired by, by stuff like Barbarella, you know, being from England, he probably had his finger on the pulse of French comics a lot sooner than we did. (laughs) I mean, there, there's six or seven points in this movie where it manages to work in a liquid light show, which uh, is so, so 1967, 68. And you always know you're, you're watching a movie from one of those two years when you see this liquid light show. But that's also a kind of an aesthetic that you uh, that you see in uh, in a lot of comic books of the time. Uh, who is the who's the artist who did like the Doctor Strange stuff and the and the Nick Fury Agent of Shields? Steve Ditko. Steve Ditko. Yeah, yeah. Ditko. Like the movies and uh, and comics really seem to be feeding off each other in this you know psychedelic imagery. And uh, kind of was curious to see what. To, what came first, like the, these old, you know, these old trippy, like late sixties Marvel comic books, but that Steve Ditko was drawing or were, you know, I would say, really, I would say that, and, and sorry to cut you off. I would say that the, yeah. uh, that stuff probably started with, a uh, with, with Jack Kirby's, um, fourth world, like new gods and stuff like that. Uh, that's, what is that? Like the late fifties or early, early, early sixties, uh, when, when Jack Kirby was, like first had the opportunity to do something that he actually wanted to do. He, he created this super, and I, I encourage you guys to read it if you like, if you like old comics, just bizarre, uh, psychedelic, um, space world with these like ancient beings that are, that are gods and stuff. And, and they, every single one of them is like a personification of whatever they're a god of. And it's just very bizarre. And they have all these inner politics and stuff and you go to strange planets, lots of, uh, liquid light shows, you know, things like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I would say that the Jack Kirby era of comic books probably played a huge part in like setting that tone maybe. Yeah, you know, yeah, I can, I can see that, and of course, you know, Ditko as well, and and you know, even more, even even in the modern day, guys like uh, Mike Allred, he's like obsessed with that sort of stuff. He did a uh, ecstatic, yeah, Jim Steranko. 
I think even did uh, Ditko one better in the in the sort of trippy imagery. He's I think he's the one who did Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, with all those. He, yeah, he's the one. He's the one that did Nick Fury. That's right. And uh, he also did a lot of uh, Strange Tales stuff, which was you know basically that was like a, just a collection of of weird, bizarre stories at the time. But it does seem like yeah, they're kind of a direct line from from uh, from Kirby to. Ditko to Steranko, like they they each kind of one upped each other in terms of bringing this this crazy psychedelic imagery to mainstream comic books. I mean, I think a, a thing the thing about comic book artists, especially in the '60s, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know this for sure, but I would go ahead and say that it was a much a much less glamorous job. Oh yeah, especially than filmmakers. So I think that you know it wouldn't surprise me if you know comic book artists were going out there and doing lsd and mixing with people uh and oh, totally more yeah. on the cutting edge of of what was cool and what would, would become cool than any sort of filmmaker i mean like you know i would guess especially i don't know i kind of hate roger vadim so i'm being mean to him but these i feel like they're the the guy who's looking about uh you know what what film am i going to make next is just not really the guy who's out there pioneering what's cool right for sure <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't think it was until, uh, I don't think it was until like Rob Liefeld that the idea of like a, uh, like a hot shot comic book artist, the celebrity comic book artist became a thing prior to that. These guys were mostly bit workers, you know, they did it. They were very rarely, uh, contracted to just one company. Um, and they often all hung out together and shared ideas. That's why like the X-Men and the Doom Patrol are almost identical. And they came out like a, a month, you know, between each other because the two guys that created them were like best buddies that hung out for beers every, you know, <laughs> it was just kind of, it was kind of, kind of the way of things, you know, this very, uh, kind of like a niche market. And they were just these sort of weird, uh, I guess you'd say like bohemians or whatever at the time that were just, they had this particular skill that happened to have like one, this kind of very small market that needed it, you know? <laughs> right. And they were always, I mean, like then they were still talked down to half the time oh, because sure, comics yeah. were for children, you know, like right. there was really no in between and anyone who decided that's why it was sort of interesting when there was this sort of resurgence of sci-fi, but you know, it, it took probably, I don't know what, maybe Star Wars to really make it more mainstreamly accepted. I, I would say mm-hmm. so, probably, yeah. And even then, you were a nerd if you liked Star Wars. So. <laughs> no, no. That, that, mean, more. Meant, that meant, meant the entire world was full of nerds, though. For sure. Hey, Smokey and the Bandit was the number one movie in that year, so. Yeah. Did you, I know you're a, a, a manga reader, Jenna. Have you read any manga from from the 60s from that era yeah what is 60s no. manga like all i know about is uh the japanese uh baseball comics i know that's a big thing but i mean i, I drew i've drawn my whole life so i've always liked comics i basically grew up always going into comic stores and looking around and then leaving largely empty-handed because it was the 90s and all of the artwork looked like shit it's all G- all the jim <laughs> lee and rob like no one has feet you know <laughs> yep and yeah. it's all you know oh like people made strictly of just muscles and boobs Yo, you know it's so it was bad just, yeah <laughs> and yeah and so you know i ended up getting like mad magazine was definitely i loved uh growing up and uh finding mouse you know in my parents house and right. reading that at a way too young age and you know, I've always loved the, the idea of it and I've always wanted to get into it, but I never got into the the, comp, the um, superhero stuff. 
I liked X-Men to a degree. Like I, I could get into it to, to some degree, but it was never like my thing. And so then I ended up going towards manga a lot because I liked the artwork a lot better, but it, the stuff that I like is really was, was contemporary to, to me basically. Right. I, I, I can't really think of anything from the nineties comic book wise that I like am particularly enamored with. I feel like when I, when I go over, you know, the comp, the timeline of comics that I love and stuff, there's just like a big black hole where the nineties is. <laughs> <laughs> it was really terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And it was yeah. funny because I, it, it's like you, you realize, like I look back now and I'm like, Oh, I wasn't wrong. Like I, cause I almost feel bad that I don't care about these Marvel movies coming out, which I, I've seen like a, probably more than i should have considering i don't care about right but (laughs) you know it was really just growing up in this like total black hole era but well that was i mean i love i love uh you know now i go back and i find people that i really like and i get really excited to to realize that they have this great backlog of stuff that you know was was probably more fringe than my local comic book store carried so you know that's a lot of fun to like go back and see like i you know like Durf Bacter if I like his stuff a lot so yeah that's that's the thing with the 90s though is it was it was the era of the uh celebrity comic book artists and to a lesser extent uh celebrity comic book writers um and that's why unfortunately a lot of it was garbage because you had these comics and this is kind of like a trope as someone that is like an aspiring comic book writer that artists can't write (laughs) For, for whatever reason. You're talking about McFarlane specifically, right? How, how did you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, artists just don't, they aren't typically very good writers. And so you have these, these stories like Youngblood and like X-Force and Cable. And uh, I guess some of the Deadpool stuff was fun. I mean, for the dialogue. But once again, even the art there is stupid. It's just muscles on muscles on muscles. So you just have these stories and these stories literally just serve as an excuse for Rob Liefeld or Jim Lee or whoever to f- draw a bigger gun than he did in the last issue, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Ryan, is there is there any specific comics that are from the the mid-century or the 60s specifically that you want to, you know, tell us to go read or tell our listeners to go read? Uh, I mean, well, since we're on the topic of French comic books and, and, and only very recently have I, and this is, this is prior to this episode too, but I recently started, you know, reading about Mobius and stuff like that. Uh, I, would, I love Mobius. Yeah, I would, I, I do too. I would suggest uh, reading the Valerian stuff, like actually go back and read it. It's amazing. I mean, I think, I think it puts star Wars to shame for sure. Uh, the characterization, the worlds are so interesting. Uh, seeing that Valerian movie and thinking about the comic, the char- like the character of Valerian in the comic and the character in the movie are, are nothing alike. It's absurd. <laughs> Terrible casting, too. Dane DeHaan is awful. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a very nuanced uh, sort of like uh, like an intellectual. Uh, you know, uh, everyman adventure or, or whatever. Like he's supposed, to, I think he's supposed to be more inspired by like Doc, uh, Doc Savage, the old Doc Savage comic books. You know, whereas we're, we're left with just this like dim-witted. Uh, what is he like an Italian underwear model or something? Or he's <laughs> <laughs> a silky brat. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't really communicate it, but but yeah, Valerian uh, and also uh, Blueberry. Blueberry is a really cool. Uh, it's a French uh, comic book set in the Civil War or set shortly after the civil war that's uh that takes place in uh in the american self and it's very it's very good it's kind of a uh it's sort of like a a french take on uh the lone ranger (laughs) and stuff so i didn't see the movie but they made a movie oh they did make a blue oh okay 
I've been really wanting to see, to read Blueberry because I got hip to that uh, through uh, Yod- my love of Yodorowsky, actually. Because when he re- he saw Blueberry and loved it and then reached out to Mobius and then they had a whole flirtation. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> they made a bunch yeah. of weird comics together, that's right. which are also great and nonsensical, but uh, totally worth reading. But yeah, Blueberry looks awesome. There is some movie that came out, I think, in like 2003 or something that didn't get great reviews, but... I don't. I haven't seen it either. I've been afraid. I didn't realize there was a blueberry movie. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, or don't. Or don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I made it through Valerian. I'm sure I can handle anything after that. <laughs> there are a lot of movies made from French comics. Now that I think of it, I mean Asterix. Oh, I was going to say Asterix. You know, yeah. dozens of movies. I think they're, they're um, obsessed with Asterix over there, aren't they? Yeah. Snowpiercer, I think, was a French. It, it comic. was a French Pretty comic. Sure. Yeah, was, oh yeah, I forgot to yeah. mention Snowpiercer. That's another great one. Yeah, Dylan Dog. Oh, is that French? <laughs> is that a French comic no. book? Oh, it's Italian. It's Italian. Close oh, enough. Okay. <laughs> the movie's awful. The comic's great. It's, I've never read the comic or seen the movie. He's supposed to be like a uh, like a paranormal detective sort of dude, right? Or... Yeah, and and he has Groucho Marx as his sidekick. Oh, nice! And... I love it. I love it already. Yep, it, it's it's totally perfect. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> isn't there isn't there some connection to Cemetery Man there too? Cemetery is the Man is is sort of a ripoff of Dylan Dog. Like they they I think that it was actually written by the same guy that wrote Dylan Dog, oh, but they didn't. Okay actually call it dylan dog but the character looks exactly like dylan dog (laughs) and it's definitely his like dylan dog's kind of shit um it's a great it also it's a great movie it's not but it's a great movie (laughs) i I love cemetery man i i I saw it when i was way too young and like waited till my grandparents i timed my grandparents leaving for the day with when they were going to be showing it on the sci-fi channel perfectly i think i was like 11 or something nice (laughs) it was so good Yeah, that's a fun movie. Definitely not appropriate for an 11-year-old. <laughs> Probably not. And uh, Blue is the Warmest Color. Let's not forget. That, that's right, also, that was that's a, a comic. comic. Yeah, I haven't yeah. read it, but or seen the movie, unfortunately. Movie was disappointing. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, the, the <laughs> movie didn't deserve all the acclaim it got, but it's all right. I, I, I'm going to bring it back to Barbarella here. Oh, that's right. What? We're doing an episode on Barbarella. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you guys at with Barbarella? Like I, at the end of the day, I actually, I really enjoyed it um, this time. And I, and I enjoyed it because I really enjoy Jane Fonda. I just think that she, she crushed it and every intent, every bad intention she wiped away uh, with her just like pure campy innocence. And it just rocks in that sense, in a weird way. Like you, if you can't go in there expecting something feminist and you can't go in there expecting something sexy it's, it's like its own weird bizarre place i i agree i think it was a very 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 fun whimsical and weird movie and she totally knocks it out of out of the park with her take on barbarella and like 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 we've all pointed out it's definitely not a like shot for shot uh depiction of the character from the comic but thank god because if you did a movie with the, with the character from the comic it would be like nothing she'd just be you know like dim-wittedly having sex with aliens and stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah be even emptier than it already is right you know? <laughs> you know this coming from somebody who's seen it you know half a dozen times i have liked this movie for a long time each time i see it i think i see a little bit less in it yeah but i also i also think it uh, compares unfavorably to Flash Gordon, one of my favorite movies as a kid. Also, you know, produced 
you know, a little over a decade later by Dino De Laurentiis, and they they feel so similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was going like, to say Flash just, Gordon is very, you know, Steve, uh, Steve's favorite movie is Flash Gordon, by the way. <laughs> Steve, Steve is a smart guy. <laughs> it's, it is such a good movie. And uh, it sort of gets the campiness of this movie just perfectly right. This movie kind of, it, it can be boring. There's nothing much driving the movie forward. And, and they have this sort of illogical plot where there's not really much at stake. And Flash Gordon is similar, but it's got, every scene is great in Flash Gordon in, in a way that, that Barbarella is is not. You, you definitely get some some dull patches. Especially the second, I would say like almost the entirety of the second half of the film is basically just like driven by her yelling, Pygar! <laughs> yeah. Every 10 minutes before a scene change, you know? And that's basically the... <laughs> Although those lost people in the labyrinth are really cool. I love yes that's those people in the wall who are are just stuck there and their lousy lives on (laughs) sogo but you also get too much of it he he knows that it's a it's a great image and he just you know vadim just keeps keeps going back to it over and over again a little little more than he has to right also feels a bit like what fellini was doing at the end of the 60s too it's got that similar like studio bound cynicite uh it's like a bad gary newman song you know it just keeps going back to that hook that you don't really care about and dragging it out and here in my sex spaceship (laughs) It has three boobs. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, it just keeps falling back on this kind of mind-blowing studio-bound imagery. And uh, it's it's great, but can get a little dull. Yeah. So I guess Barbarella, at the end of the day, worth watching, but lower your expectations. Right. Definitely a watch, but don't don't expect to like have your life change. <laughs> but... but then you may end up watching it several more times just because <laughs> it's got it's got a certain something. And not just Jane Fonda and her outfits and lack of them. It's it's got it's got more than that. There's a it's got Pygo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Ryan. That was a lot of fun. For sure. Thanks. Yeah, it was that was a lot of fun. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Sometime we'll have to have you guys on uh, on Lost in the Long Boxes to do a uh, to do an episode too. For sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna get on your case to to have us on to talk about Modesty Blaze. We've already done that on on our show. But I can, you know, I can talk endlessly about it. So, uh, so think about. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah, think about it. Read it. Think about I'll have it. To, have us I'll on. Have to read it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's lost in the long boxes. Is that available on all Apple Podcasts and Spotify's? It it is. It or is. Or is there a specific website we should go to? No, we're we're available on all the major uh, all the major podcasting. Uh, hosting services and stuff. Although if you Google it, there's a similarly named podcast that might come up, but this is lost in the long boxes, right? Plural. Yeah. And there's. Yeah. Plural with an exclamation point at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So, so don't confuse it with something else that has a similar name. Go, go for the, go for the real deal. Lost in the long boxes. It's great. And do you have any social media accounts we should follow, Ryan? Well, we, uh, you know, we have our Facebook page and we have a, a recently formed Facebook group for people to uh, talk about comics and mostly for them to give us ideas for, uh, you know, f- uh, future episode topics. And uh, we have a uh, we have a Twitter and stuff that I'm terrible about keeping up. I don't really even understand what Twitter is. To be honest <laughs> Me <with> either. <laughs> Twitter's a void. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. 
It is. No offense to our Twitter followers. We love Twitter. <laughs> thank you, Ryan. Hey, thank you guys. I don't know. And enjoy enjoy your time in your shag carpet spaceship. I will. I will. I need to go polish the uh, the you know the breast augmentations <laughs> to that spaceship. <laughs> so yeah, let's all go off and try and save the world with sex. All right. That's our takeaway from Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.